1-800-439-5732. You can go right to kpfa.org, hit the pledge button, and join us there. Why don't you do it when it makes a difference? Why don't you do it to show folks that you care about this kind of radical reporting, that you care enough to put your money where your beliefs are, to step forward for the alternative, the non-corporate, no-holds-barred alternative to corporate disinformation. one 800 439-5732. Miguel, tell us what we need There's to hear. A, well, well, I, I, I think people, uh, I, I, I hope that people feel the urgency we have. We're in a serious situation here. And, uh, you know, the last two years have been brutal on everybody uh, in this country. But, uh, you know, we're still here. Uh, we've suffered. We have, uh, you know, survived some unbelievable situations. But we're here because we believe in this station. We believe in free speech. You know, it's one of our basic constitutional rights. And this program advocates truth peace and compassion. If you can embrace that from Santa Rosa, San Francisco, Sacramento, Oakland, San Jose, all the way down to Ventura, all the way down to Los Angeles, Huntington Beach, out there by Riverside, San Bernardino, we are up and down the state. We need you to go to your phones right now. Up here in the Northern California, 1-800-439-5732 or kpfa.org. Down in the Southlands, you can go to 818 818- Nine eight five five seven three five, or you can go to kpfk dot org and make your contribution. Support free speech. That's one of the most endangered languages on earth right now. You know, free speech and the truth. You can support this. Be part of the resistance. We are here. We're resisting the the corporate, the military, the government lies and, and 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 confusion they put out here by mass media. We are truth to power. Support that. One eight hundred four three nine five seven three two. Give us your donations. Don't give it to Uncle Sam because you know what that tax money does. It creates billions for war. We need that here in this country. We need it here in the state of California. 1-800-439-5732 or kpfa.org. Support true peace and compassion. We are out of time. Miguel Gabriela Molina, Mike Biggs, I'm Dennis Bernstein. The news is coming up shortly. You don't want to miss that, but you can call 1-800-439-5732 or go to kpfa.org. There are three people on the line. We hope you'll be patient and those calls will be answered sooner or later. Thank you. And this is 94.1 KPFA, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248VR in Santa Cruz. Good morning. You have some gravy in your ear. This is Wavy Gravy, uh, Temple of Accumulated Air and Voice of Woodstock, telling you you are listening to KBOO Portland at 90.7 FM. The 90s are the 60s. Standing on your head. Yow! KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBOO, meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The Development and Events Committee meets on the fourth Monday of the month at 4.30 p.m. Please visit our website at KBOO. .fm to verify if a meeting is being held. Does your employer have a matching gifts program? Many companies offer dollar-for-dollar dollar matching charitable contributions for donations you make to KBOO. The impact of your gift may be doubled or possibly tripled. Participating companies also match gifts made by retirees and or spouses. 
Matching gifts are a great way for you to maximize your membership dollars. Check with your company's human resources or accounting departments to find out if your employer matches charitable contributions, then request a matching gift form. For more information on companies making matching gifts, go to kboo.fm forward slash employer matching. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome back one of my favorite guests, Dr. Liz Carlisle. She is an assistant professor in the environmental studies program at University of California, Santa Barbara. She teaches courses on food and farming there However, she was born and raised in Montana, where she got hooked on sustainable agriculture while working as an aide to organic farmer and U.S. Senator John Tester. That led to a decade of research and writing collaborations with agroecological farmers in her home state. Dr. Carlisle has written three books about regenerative farming and agroecology, Lentil Underground, Grain by Grain with co-author Bob Quinn, and most recently, and the topic of our conversation today, Healing Grounds, Climate, Justice, and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming. Dr. Carlisle is also a frequent contributor to both academic journals and popular media outlets, where she focuses on food and farm policy, incentivizing soil health practices, and supporting new entry farmers. She holds a PhD in geography from the University of California at Berkeley. She holds a BA in folklore and mythology from Harvard University. And prior to her career as a writer and academic, she spent several years touring rural America as a country singer. Welcome, Liz. Thank you so much for having me back, Melinda. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, I am thrilled. And I love that in addition to all of your academic work, you toured the country as a country music singer. I just think that you probably learned so much in that time when you traveled around. It's just absolutely true. And, you know, early on in graduate school, I didn't mention that to very many people. I kind of buried that. I never would have put it in an official bio. But in recent years, I think I have realized just how much of my work has actually been informed by that experience. So so thanks for sharing that. I don't feel like I need to hide it anymore. <laughs> no, and I think the last time we spoke, which was right after your excellent book, Lentil Underground, which I just want to let our listeners know is a fabulous book, not so much about lentils as it is about cooperative farming. And that, of course, that theme runs through this book as well. But I remember when we first spoke about that, I said, I hope you're still singing because you have a beautiful voice as well. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's wonderful to have had music as part of my life. So thank you to my parents (laughs) for gifting me with that experience. Well, it's a wonderful language in its own right. We need to jump into Healing Grounds because I think this is such an important book. I would guess that you wrote this book before the war in Ukraine and we were dealing with climate crisis and then while climate was on our radar front and center, then COVID happened. And your introduction to this book is actually written by Ricardo Salvador with the Union of Concerned Scientists. And he rightly starts out by saying that as this book goes to press, the need for healing is on the mind of anyone who reflects on the times in which we live. And I think about that line and I think, oh, he wrote that before the war. So this is now amplified all the more. Your book opens not with a dedication, but with a quote from Robin Wall Kimmerer, who was the author of Braiding Sweetgrass. Would you mind reading that? Oh, yeah. This passage I come back to again and again. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's just such wisdom in these words from Robin Wall Kimmerer. My students will often pull this out as the passage from Braiding Sweetgrass that most resonates with them, that they want to write down and put on their wall. So... It was a kind of guiding 
almost mantra for me as I was researching this book. This is, uh, this is Robin Wall Kimmerer from Braiding Sweetgrass, and she writes, Know the ways of the ones who take care of you so that you may take care of them. Introduce yourself. Be accountable as the one who comes asking for life. Ask permission before taking. Abide by the answer. Never take the first. Never take the last. Take only what you need. Take only that which is given. Never take more than half. Leave some for others. Harvest in a way that minimizes harm. Use it respectfully. Never waste what you have taken. Share. Give thanks for what you have been given. Give a gift in reciprocity for what you have taken. Sustain the ones who sustain you and the earth will last forever. And that, again, it's Robin Wall Kimmerer from Braiding Sweetgrass. And I could not think of a better way to introduce this book because what Robin Wall Kimmerer's statement says to me is it is a message of reverence for the land and the food and each other. And boy, couldn't we all use a little bit more of that? Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's the underpinning of everything that we need to do in our food system and in response to the climate crisis and to find these integrated forms of healing. Exactly. And this recognition that we are all connected on this earth. And this particular book, Healing Grounds, Climate Justice and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming, really captures the voices of five key women, and they are protectors of the earth and the food system. And I'm wondering how you found these five voices to tell the story of regeneration? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. It definitely, this is a sort of my situated perspective as the author of this particular book. You know, lots of other people might tell this story differently from their own perspective. But for me, as a white woman from a settler background, born and raised in Montana, it made sense that I should start trying to understand the ancestral roots of what's now being talked about as regenerative agriculture by speaking with indigenous leaders in Montana, in the sort of territories where I was born and raised and where I have the deepest relationships. So I was really, really lucky to have the opportunity to speak with Latrice Tatsy, who's a Blackfeet woman who is a scientist. She's finishing up a graduate degree at Montana State University who's looking at the carbon sequestration implications of both buffalo grazing and cattle grazing. She's actually comparing soil health data on buffalo pastures and cattle pastures at Blackfeet Nation. And she's both an advocate for buffalo restoration, as is her dad, and really involved in bringing buffalo home to Blackfeet Nation. And also her family raises cattle, and they've been trying to think about the way that they raise cattle as being informed by these relationships with buffalo. So that was so clearly the place for me to start. And my conversation with Latrice helped me, I think, grapple with not just that history in Montana, but indigenous land management throughout North America. And then following after that conversation, I knew I really needed to try to grapple with the black experience of agriculture in the U.S. and also African indigenous regenerative agriculture and the ways in which that has continued throughout the African diaspora. And I was able to speak with a woman named Olivia Watkins, who is forest farming, a plot of forest in North Carolina that's been in her family for 130 years. So an ancestor of hers was one of the first black landowners in that area in 1890. And she tells this incredible story about how she simultaneously preserving threatened Black-owned land and conserving threatened forest in an area that's rapidly urbanizing. So this land is both a sanctuary for Black people and a sanctuary for wildlife and soil carbon. 
in a world, you know, where this extractive colonial paradigm sort of threatens them both. And I learned a lot, I think, about ways in which black liberation and agroforestry and relationships with trees and woods have been really deeply connected. How were you connected to these individuals? And then we'll go on to the others, but I'm wondering how you were able to find these strong, wise voices. Actually, there's so many amazing leaders of color in the regenerative agriculture movement, or you know, maybe people who wouldn't use those terms, but whose work deeply informs what regenerative agriculture should be doing. The hardest part was like, wow, how do you choose? And yet I wanted to go deeply into particular stories. I wanted each of these chapters to essentially have a sort of guide, have the story of one person guide the reader through these deep, complex histories of whole communities. So that part was challenging. (laughs) But as far as connecting with people, it's been really wonderful to be in this field now for about 12 years and to be teaching and organizing with people and trying to get policies passed and things like that. And so I just kind of started with that web of relationships. And I started by talking with mentors and peers who I deeply respect about just these bigger concepts of how is racial justice related to regenerative agriculture? And what work do you think, what specific work speaks to those really bigger issues that everybody needs to understand? And Latrice, you know, I met Latrice's dad back in, I think, 2010 when I was a graduate student and I was interested in some programs that Blackfeet Community College was doing. So that was kind of reconnecting with folks I'd spoken with many years earlier. Olivia Watkins, I didn't know her at all. I saw her on a Savannah Institute webinar and was just blown away hearing about Oliver's agroforest or forest farming project. So that was just a cold email. (laughs) Right. Okay, so let's go through the others briefly, and then we'll go back and do as much of a deep dive as we can do in 30 minutes. So the third individual featured in the book is... Adie Guzman. Yes, and it took me a long time to get that pronunciation. I still probably don't have it, but I think more or less, Aide Guzman. And so Aide works and researches in California, which is where I now live and work. So she actually came to Berkeley as a graduate student while I was still there as a graduate student. And she had this amazing project that she was working on for her dissertation in California's Central Valley. So California's Central Valley, you know, much like the Midwestern landscapes we've been talking about, is dominated by industrial agriculture. But Ida was proposing this project working with small-scale, diversified farms. She basically wanted to show that having a diversity of crops above ground would correspond to biodiversity below ground in the soil microbial community, which is so key to carbon sequestration. And a lot of folks in the research community were like, where are you going to find these small-scale diversified farms in the Central Valley? You know, like you're going to be looking for a needle in a haystack. But Ida, actually, her parents came to the Central Valley as farm workers. They had grown up on a small-scale diversified farm in Mexico. But anyway, Ida was connected to the immigrant community in the Central Valley and connected to immigrant small farmers who were raising these biodiverse polycultures in the midst of this industrial farming landscape. And so she partnered with those farmers and her research demonstrated that in fact, yes, this biodiversity in crops corresponds to this biodiversity below ground. She found two times as many types of arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi on polyculture farms. Wow. Liz, we've got to take one quick break because we're halfway through. So I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Dr. Liz Carlisle. And she is the author of the book we're focused on, which is titled Healing Grounds, Climate, Justice, and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming. Well, we then jump into a conversation with Nikiko Masumoto. Tell me briefly about her. Yeah, so Nikiko is also in the California Central Valley, and her family were Japanese-American immigrants in the early 20th century, and so they faced all kinds of discriminatory laws 
they weren't able to buy land because Japanese Americans were not allowed to buy land. And then her family members were incarcerated during World War II, during the internment period. So her grandparents came out of that period and despite all of that, decided they were going to plant roots in American soil in this place that had made them feel they did not belong. So she's now the third generation farming organic nectarines, peaches, and raisin grapes and apricots on Masamoto family farm. Her dad, Moss, is an incredibly gifted author. So maybe some of your listeners know Moss Masamoto's books. Absolutely. And then you also bring the voice of Stephanie Morningstar. Yeah. So in the final chapter, I had sort of gotten to know all of these women who were doing these incredible projects that were really powerful climate solutions, like really deep regenerative agriculture in terms of really having the ability to draw soil carbon back out of the atmosphere, but also so much about indigenous land sovereignty and farmers of color getting access to land. So there's all this cool stuff going on. But then ultimately the question, I imagine you get asked sometimes, Melinda, and that I've gotten asked a lot with my work, is like, you know, if this stuff is so cool, why isn't this the dominant way that farming is being approached in this country? Mm. And it was so clear to me throughout the research for that book that the answer to that question is a failure of land justice. That 98% of agricultural land in this country is white-owned, and much of that is now increasingly controlled by institutional finance and people pretty far removed from the idea of managing land based on a reciprocal relationship. So the key thing it became clear to me is land justice and indigenous people, communities of color need to have long-term land tenure in order to be able to do all this cool stuff that was featured in the book. So there were a couple projects that I was really inspired by that are kind of like next generation land trusts. And so one of them is the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust, directed by Stephanie Morningstar. And so like a lot of land trusts, the idea is to try to acquire land and then manage it in a particular way that is consistent with set of environmental goals, but then also provide access to a particular set of people. So it's kind of a hybrid between a conservation land trust and a community land trust. But what's cool is that it's not just about changing who owns the land. The deeper mission of Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust is to actually change the way we relate to land and to get beyond just that imposed colonial notion of property and have land as a relation kind of emerge again and to have every single one of these projects to be working with indigenous communities in whose territories these projects are happening supporting farmers and developing cooperative business models to really shift the way that people relate to land. Well, I love this book because of the voices that you chose to amplify and bring in their unique perspectives culturally to help us see that there are common threads and the importance of paying attention to those. In one of the topics I wanted to bring up with you, and maybe we should have done this from the get-go, is this notion of regenerative farming, because each of the voices you bring to the book identifies what regenerative farming really looks like. And yet, I see regenerative as the next new greenwashed buzzword, not unlike sustainable, which doesn't have a legal definition. And I see it popping up all over the place. And I see the industrial food system latching onto it, thinking, well, you know, if we can call what we're doing regenerative, we can sell more product. How do you navigate the definition of regenerative agriculture? That's a great question, Melinda. (laughs) You know, I just want to say, first of all, that I think there's a lot of different ways to answer that question. And I completely respect the view that perhaps this is just not the right word to take us where we need to go. I think for me, it seemed like there was an opportunity in the word regeneration, because that to me is actually pretty explicit. It's a commitment to fixing what was broken to healing what was damaged. That to me is is the like literal meaning of the word regeneration. So the fact that so many people are uttering that word 
and are attracted to that word and that idea, I think that's an opportunity to say, okay, we're interested in regeneration. What does it mean? What is required of us in order to actually regenerate the agricultural lands of the North American continent? And if you take that seriously, that's going to lead you on a journey where you see that, okay, yes, soil carbon was extracted, but that was part of a larger extractive process that affected people as well as soil and plants and animals. And all those relationships that were disrupted through that violence and that extraction, in order for those things to all come back together in a sort of healing and reciprocal way, it needs to involve more than just measuring the amount of soil carbon on a particular plot of land. It really does need to involve true regeneration. (laughs) And that, you know, I think the key part for me is that involves people. Yeah. I thought it was interesting you gave a great webinar through Island Press, who is the publisher of your book. And I believe there will be a link to that available. And I'll post that along with this interview, because I think you brought up so many excellent points in that. But one of the things that you brought forth that I think really needs attention is that this idea that, oh, regenerative agriculture, it's this new concept. And you make very clear that it is not new. Yeah, it's not new. That is for sure, although it is new to some people. Um, Right. So, yeah, I mean, sort of the first techniques that I became aware of when I started talking to folks in the organic movement that then kind of migrated towards regenerative over time, I started learning about things like planting a soil-building cover crop or using compost or mulch to return organic matter to the soil, rotating more diverse crops. Um, in some cases, more ambitiously designing an agroforestry system or something with more perennial plants. And all of those techniques that are getting a lot of attention right now under this umbrella of regenerative, they're all rooted in ancestral practices that indigenous peoples around the world have been using for hundreds, in many cases, thousands of years. And when you sort of trace them back to those origins, you find that they're not just applied as isolated practices here and there. They're part of a systematic means of managing land that is this kind of reciprocal relationship with land. So it's both important to kind of credit these indigenous communities around the world with having come up with this stuff, but it's also important to take leadership from those communities and implementing it because the way in which they're implementing it isn't just this kind of hodgepodge of individual techniques. It's actually a sort of integrated whole that that's where the power to reverse climate change lies. Right. <laughs> Not just in like, oh, let's do a little no-till over here and, you know, plant a cover crop over here. It has to be much more, it has to be much deeper than that. Exactly. It's not a list of things to do. It's much broader. And I think that Nikiko Masumato really summed it up well on page 154, where she says, if we even just pause and think about the term regenerative, for me, what jumps out is the idea of a generational connection. It's about a much deeper timeline of what it means to belong to a place. And I thought that was beautiful because in our American culture, it seems that we're very much dominated by this idea of modernness and, you know, what are our earnings per quarter, as opposed to taking this essential long view beyond ourselves, beyond the present generation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think an orientation that I'll probably spend my whole life reaching for, but that I hear very much in Nikiko's words and in Latrice Tatsy's words, in particular from Blackfeet Nation, is the idea that, in fact, we are the land and the land is us. Like, you know, you speak so eloquently, Melinda, about health and the idea that the health of the land and the well-being of the land and the well-being of, like, my body are so deeply interconnected I mean, there's, there are languages in which people use the same words for both of those things. And wow. so I think that's the kind of perspective to reach for, is right. where you don't even make this distinction between taking care of land and taking care of like a human family member, that it is all really so deeply integrated. Exactly. 
And, you know, we just have a few minutes, but I would be remiss if I didn't bring up something that is on a lot of people's minds right now, and that is whether or not to eat meat. And that takes us back, of course, to your experience with Latrice and the horrific slaughter of bison on the Great Plains. And I feel like we should be talking about meat eating because so many of us want to do the right thing. So it's not just what farmers can do or land stewards can do, but it's up to all of us, as you say. It's the eaters too, the consumers, to all be working together and see ourselves as united. And personally, and I've heard you say this as well, is you don't have to give up meat, but meat from an industrial system is not sustainable, it's not regenerative, it's not good for the soil, it's not good for our health, it's not good for water and air quality. So less meat, but better meat, but I don't think that technology and these cell-based meats are the answer that seems incongruous with our discussion of regenerative, a regenerative way of being. Yep, I'm 100% with you on all of that, Melinda. And I think that less meat, better meat phrase has been very helpful to me. And I also agree with you that what I'm seeing in the cell-based meat community is just more of the same in terms of processed foods that are produced by corporate actors. And I think about how different it is than like having a backyard chicken and eating an egg, you know, in terms of the food sovereignty that you might have over that protein source are not something anybody's ever going to make in their backyard, you know? Right. And that makes me uncomfortable because then who's in control of your food system? So I think you're right. I think we're going to be stuck with CAFOs if we continue to demand the amount of meat on a population basis that we currently do in the U.S. because we can't produce that much meat regeneratively. But if we can eat less meat, (laughs) then that means it can be humanely raised and regenerative and in right relationship. Mm. And I think, to me, that's what I want out of my participation in the food system is a feeling that I'm part of other beings thriving rather than part of other beings having a bad life. I think that term, writing relationship, came up in your webinar You mentioned it just now. I feel like that is a great closing concept. The idea that we are going to write relationships with our environment and with the wise people who came before us to create a truly regenerative system. So unfortunately, Liz, we're out of time. But in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Liz Carlisle. She is the author of Healing Grounds, Climate Justice and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming. She is the author of multiple books and articles, and I encourage you to pick this one up if you want to have feelings of positivity moving forward. There is a way, and you've outlined it for us very well. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Melinda. Such a pleasure. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Shana Klein. She is an art historian, assistant professor of art history at Kent State University in Kent, Ohio, and the author of a terrific new book that we will be focused on today titled The Fruits of Empire, Art, Food, and the Politics of Race in the Age of American Expansion. I saw her present for the Pepin Lecture Series in Food Studies through Boston University, and I immediately fell in love with her work because of our shared interests in food and media literacy. Dr. Klein received a PhD in art history from the University of New Mexico, and she was awarded several impressive fellowships for her research, including the Smithsonian American Art Museum, the U.S. Capitol Building, 
the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum, and others. Her research interests include American visual and material culture, food studies, race and post-colonial studies, and art and social justice. And her explorations of art, food, and racism have been featured on a number of digital publications and podcasts. Welcome, Shana. Thank you so much, Melinda. That was such a kind introduction, and I am thrilled to be talking to you today. Well, your book is such a comprehensive dive into fruit and fruit imagery through an arts world perspective. So I want to start out by asking you, how and why did you become interested in this particular area? Yeah, it's a little bit of a roundabout story. So I am a proud graduate from the University of New Mexico, and they have great faculty in Latin American, Native American, African American art. These are histories that are generally marginalized in my discipline. So I have a unique education in both traditional and non-traditional art. And so I had the privilege of taking a class on Central American art history, and I learned about the work of Moises Barrios. Barrios is a contemporary Guatemalan artist, And he paints the display windows of Banana Republic clothing stores, which sounds kind of quirky. But he does this to urge viewers to consider, why do we have this clothing company named after Banana Republics, which is, by the way, a racial slur. It is a slur that characterizes countries um, that have political instability or financial corruption. In large part, this is due to American political intervention. So companies like the United Fruit Company, which is a banana company that intervened in Latin American politics over and over again in the most destructive ways. And so looking at Barrios's work got me thinking how food is so political, that even something as seemingly innocuous as a banana is really politically charged. And so it inspired me to look back into art history, and I wanted to see, you know, where are some of the first images of the banana in American art. And it was all kind of happening in the late 1800s, the early 20th century. This is a time period, by no accident, when Americans are starting to try to colonize and control areas abroad. And so the banana appears in art in kind of real time, when Americans are getting more access to the banana as the business is growing the importation business is growing abroad. So once I started seeing the politics of food in one painting, I couldn't unsee it, and it just exploded from there. That's what media literacy does. Mm. Once you see things, you can't unsee them. Exactly. (laughs) It's the same way once you learn about things, you can't unlearn them. Right. And it ends up influencing everything we do, if we're paying attention, and I think your book helps us pay attention. I'm glad you mentioned Barrios. You have chosen one of his images to be on the cover of your book, and it's a bunch of bananas with military planes on them. It must have been hard to pick a single image. Why did you settle on this one? Yeah, I felt like Barrios' painting was the kind of culmination of this topic to begin with, a topic that was originally my dissertation. So I've been living with this research for so many years before it became a book publication. But Barrios' work is also, I think, really eye-catching and in some ways uses the same seductive and persuasive techniques as food advertisements, but reverses it by showing a critical look at how some of our food systems fail us or how some of these advertisements persuade us in dangerous ways. Okay, so you have divided this book up into five chapters, and obviously Bananas is one of the chapters. You also have The Grape oranges and watermelon and pineapple. Why did you choose those five foods specifically? Yeah, so after doing so many years of research and inventorying museum websites and also looking at so much archival information, I was really just trying to chronicle what foods kept appearing over and over again. And so something like the grape is one of the most visible fruits in American art and visual culture. So I was really interested in the visibility of fruits But more importantly, these were the fruits that I chose because they seem to be some of the most politically loaded fruits. They seem to be stimulating conversations about race and citizenship and the landscapes where they were grown. So a lot of the fruits in my book, they were grown in landscapes that were considered frontiers or they were considered borderlands. They were at the center of debates over whether or not these lands should be incorporated into the colonial American empire. 
And so these were the fruits that were a platform for artists and viewers to press upon these larger conversations about society. Well, we've just got 30 minutes, so I thought the approach that I would take would be to look at some key takeaways from each of these chapters. And let's start with grapes. They're the first chapter. And what I found most disturbing about the whole grape story was the fact that the grape industry, the wine industry, mm-hmm. was really built by the hard labor of Asian labor workforces as well as native and certainly the Latino workforce. So you've got an image showing workers on a farm in California, Mm -hmm. and you've got some images of Asian laborers. And after this image was published, many people wrote in complaining that they didn't want their wine to be produced by less than pure workers, meaning anybody that wasn't white. Yeah, so I can help set the scene. This is an illustration that was done by Paul Frenzeni, and it was for a widely circulating journal called Harper's Weekly. And the illustration on the surface seems so innocent. We're looking at a kind of jolly illustration of mostly Asian immigrant grape labor stomping grapes with their feet, raising their hands in the air. It looks like a big kind of fun, rowdy party. But after this illustration was published, a few people wrote in and expressed anxiety about it, saying that they did not want to look at this illustration of California grape culture. They didn't want to see Chinese people stomping grapes with their, quote, filthy feet and limbs. And so I use this illustration as a kind of moment of pregnant pause for my readers, for them to consider how something as small and seemingly innocent as the grape stimulated larger conversations in their representation about who should have the privilege of cultivating America's fruits, who has the racial purity of cultivating America's fruitlands, that something, again, as small as a grape could trigger these racist anxieties. And you also report that promoting grapes and promoting the American wine industry was a way to expand the nation westward. That's right. I mean, they're using, horticulturists and vintners are using very imperialist rhetoric when talking about grape culture. They're describing how installing vineyards in the rugged western wilderness was a way to bring civilization to the western frontier. It was a way to bring sophistication to California, and it was a way to claim and dominate that land. So grape cultivation really becomes this method of control and conquering that landscape, which had been previously owned by Mexican Californios, And before them, it had been owned by indigenous people for centuries. And so there's a a long legacy of who that landscape belongs to historically, but also the way that grape growing and viticulture is used to maintain control over that land. Wow. The next chapter is about citrus. And you reported that this is your favorite chapter (laughs) because it tends to be more positive. Now, this was fascinating to me and what jumped out for me was the fact that citrus growing was a way to, after the Civil War, Northerners then were able to go into the South Mm -hmm. and bring their Northern culture into the Southern space. So talk about why this is your favorite chapter. Yeah, so I feel like when people pick up my book, they're probably going to be attracted to the flashier chapters on like the pineapple or the banana, but the orange chapter is my favorite because I make some surprising discoveries, one of them being that it's northerners, not southerners, but northerners who are spearheading the Florida orange industry. So northerners are moving to the south after the Civil War, and they are installing orange groves as a way to make a profit, but also to change the politics and the economics of the South after the Civil War. They are helping to move the economy away from tobacco, cotton, and industries that were tarnished by the recent history of slavery. And so orange growing carried this kind of optimism that this would usher in a new chapter for Southerners, and particularly for newly freed, emancipated African Americans. Many Northerners, they're hiring newly freed black men and women on their orange groves as a way to give them a new profession, albeit it's condescending and their approach is patronizing. 
but they're doing this in what they conceive to be as a charitable act, as a way to reconstruct and rehabilitate the South and the people who live there. And the images of African Americans are largely positive. You know, I wouldn't even say that they're positive. I would say that they're remarkable because they're neutral. And so many images from this time period, I mean, we're still in the Reconstruction and also Jim Crow period, they are so terribly caricatured. They are really racist and nasty, cruel stereotypes in the way that African Americans are displayed in most mainstream images and photographs. And so that we have a kind of straightforward look at black people being the backbone of this important industry, it shows them with dignity and it shows them with integrity, which sadly is such a departure from the norm in how black people are represented in this time period. And on that note, that takes us to the watermelon chapter. What I learned in that chapter was that watermelons before the Civil War were seen as giving Africans agency and Mm -hmm. they brought this fruit from their native country and they planted it in slave gardens and yet after the civil war the watermelon became a racist weapon through imagery that's exactly right so the watermelon is an import to the united states we think that it mostly came across the atlantic ocean on the transatlantic slave trade from africa it's an african fruit And it's also something that many enslaved people are cultivating on slave gardens. And slave gardens are one of the only sites where African Americans have any sense of autonomy or independence away from enslavers. And so this is a site of agency, what we'd call agency today, or, you know, a site of power and empowerment. It's an African fruit that enslaved people are cultivating on their own without too much interference. And so it's no accident and probably no surprise that the watermelon and its relationship to independence then gets totally reversed by image makers after the Civil War who are using the watermelon and designing it in their images to then make claims that African Americans are an inferior race, that they are a savage people, that they are unfit as citizens. And so you see thousands and thousands of racist imagery of African Americans hoarding watermelon stealing watermelon, drooling over the fruit, morphing into it. The word that I use to describe the watermelon stereotype in art is relentless. Mm. There's no surface that it didn't touch, high art, low art, and there's no area of the country that it didn't graze. So I found images in the south, the north, as far west as Hawaii. And so it's a stereotype that was really relentless and so pervasive in American visual culture. Before we leave that, let me just take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Shana Klein, and she is an art historian, the author of The Fruits of Empire, Art, Food, and the Politics of Race in the Age of American Expansion. She's also an assistant professor of art history at Kent State University. Okay, I can't leave the watermelon chapter without the striking photograph that you bring forth from Carrie Mae Weems. She brings back respect and agency, and she's got an image of an African-American male. He's handsome, he's strong, he's holding a whole watermelon, but it's clear that this is a constructed image. Tell me about that image and what it means to you. Yes, I'm so glad you brought that into the conversation because... Like I mentioned, the watermelon stereotype was relentless and it's pervasive in so many images and that is the least rewarding part of this research, right? To talk about the way in which images perpetuate these terrible racist attitudes. But I also fold in examples in my book and research of ways that artists are using the watermelon or fruits to combat these stereotypes, to resist them. And Carrie Mae Weems is a great example because she has this amazing photograph of a black man standing tall Again, with all the dignity and integrity of maybe some of those orange photographs, he's holding the watermelon with his hands, and you can see and feel the weight of the watermelon. It's so heavy, as if to extend it metaphorically to the the weight and the burden that black people are shouldered with, with this nasty stereotype. And then in the background, you can see the skylight, and perhaps it was her studio. So that signals to us that this image was crafted, thoughtfully created by the artist, as a way to also signal how images from the past of watermelon have been created and crafted and manufactured over time to send these really dangerous messages. 
And so mm-hmm. she uses her own photograph to dismantle that, to expose it, but also to demonstrate a more dignified image of a black man holding a watermelon that is uncut as if to suggest that he's refusing to open up this conversation to racist images of the past. This is just so fascinating. And how many of us are aware of how much images affect how we think? Yeah, as an art historian, that's part of my job. It's to teach my students and to teach any listeners who are interested that visual images do something that a poem does not. Visual images perform work that perhaps music does not. They have this unique ability to kind of float in our visual universe and in ways we internalize images differently from other aspects of the humanities. And that's what makes them so powerful. But like I also keep saying, it also makes them a bit dangerous because they infiltrate our visual psyche. We take in these messages maybe without knowing it. And the beauty of your book is that you help us deconstruct and understand what you're seeing before these images have a way of affecting our thinking. And then once we start thinking a certain way, it's hard to shift, isn't it? Yeah, and that is the greatest compliment, by the way. (laughs) Thank you for thinking that's the accomplishment of this work. That would be really rewarding for me to hear if that's the case, because hopefully this also tunes everyone's antenna to think more critically about visual images, to consider something like the color, the texture, or the perspective of a work of art, how all of these are deliberate decisions by the artist to communicate certain messages. And so I hope readers can think more critically and feel more empowered now that they have the tools to look at these images and deconstruct them. Right. Bananas are the next chapter, and we sort of touched on that. Is there Anything else you want us to know about bananas before we jump into pineapples? With the banana chapter and also with some of the other research I do, it's important to me that I recover the histories of women, that women are really important to food histories because they were considered the directors of the home, the authorities on food, the purchasers of food. So it's also in the banana chapter that I talk about dining room culture and how women are helping to incorporate the banana into American homes and that we should not neglect how women also shaped commercial expansion and the American empire. It's funny that you bring that up because I am a product of the College of Home Economics. Mm. That's where dietetics programs have been traditionally housed and home economists have been targeted by these different industries, fruit, vegetables, you know, you name it, cookware because we're seen as those who can carry that culture forward. And you've got these beautiful images of banana dishes and, of course, the cookbooks and recipes. So we are the conduits to carry this way of thinking and eating forward. So I love that all of these fields are coming together. I did want to ask a question about one image called Banana Boy. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could help me understand that image because... Most images of food or fruit in this particular case that we're trying to promote are often seen as in a a higher class light, right? If you want to be successful, you'll choose this food. Certainly, Um, like aspirational. Exactly. But in the case of Banana Boy, he is clearly a child that's probably working in a factory. His pants Mm -hmm. are torn. He's missing a tooth and he's holding a banana. Why do you think the artist chose that image. I love this painting because it shows a boot black, so a young boy who was probably maybe an immigrant from Eastern Europe, that's generally the population for a boot black in Manhattan, and the artist John George Brown shows him holding the banana, and I think he's holding it upside down because the nub that we use to open the banana, it's pointed toward the ground. And so I interpret this as a boy who is unfamiliar with this fruit. This was likely painted in the late 19th century when bananas were still not accessible on a mainstream level to a mainstream degree. And so many Americans thought the banana was very exotic for most of the 1800s. And so here we have in painting this witness and record of a boy probably experiencing the fruit for the first time or the second time because there's a banana peel at his feet. And he shows excitement and interest and eagerness in looking at the banana. And the banana, unlike a lot of foods, was well accepted pretty immediately by American consumers. People were really bananas, pun intended, for the banana. 
And so this is an early image that I think documents some of these first encounters with the fruit in the United States until it becomes more widely imported and widely circulating in the early 20th century with companies like United Fruit. And I thought it was interesting, you report this in the text, that bananas were sold peeled and sliced and wrapped in foil because they were too phallic for women to be eating. (laughs) Right, that women, and this isn't my research actually, I'm indebted to a scholar before me who wrote this, that she reported it was cut into slices and wrapped in foil because it was so improper and impolite for a woman in public to be eating the very phallic banana. Wow. Gosh, there's such great history in food, isn't there? Yes, I know. I love it. It's a quirky subject. Well, we have to jump to the pineapple. And I will tell you that the story that you told in the Pepin lecture that jumped out to me was that Georgia O'Keeffe had been hired to do a painting of the pineapple. She wanted to visit a cannery where these pineapples were being processed. She was not given permission. So what did she do? So by the end of the trip, she's literally there to paint a pineapple. That is why the Dole Hawaiian Pineapple Company has sent her to Honolulu. They reject her request to stay on a pineapple plantation, and she leaves Honolulu without ever painting a single pineapple. And instead, the rumor goes she painted a papaya, which was Dole's rival. So I use this example to talk about the different degrees of cooperation with empire, that it's not so black and white, that there are nuances and different degrees to how artists were supporting or resisting or maybe both in their images to support commercial expansion. Eventually, they eke out a pineapple painting from O'Keeffe. They send her a budding pineapple on a Pan Am clipper to her penthouse apartment in Manhattan, and she creates this painting that they then use for their advertisement. So I guess everyone kind of leaves the situation happy, but it shows you how there was some tension in which companies did not necessarily want their artists to be in the know of how their workers were living and the conditions for the production of their food. And I love the way that you describe how the pineapple was seen as this exotic paradise through imagery, and you've got some great photos in the book. But that's on the one hand that we're going to sell this exotic paradise and it supports national expansion and Hawaiian statehood. But on Mm -hmm. the other hand is the reality that there is a lot of violence and land takeover. Yeah, I mean, the whole pineapple industry is built on the violence. It is established on the violence of indigenous removal. The population of indigenous Hawaiians is diminished so profoundly after white entrepreneurs and the U.S. government annexed Hawaii in the late 1800s. And so a person like James Dole takes advantage of that. He benefits from that legacy of indigenous removal, as do many other businessmen who start their enterprises and their empires in Hawaii as a result of taking over and conquering that land that was not theirs. It's fascinating history of our food through images that we don't take the time to think about. So you have helped us do that. We just have a couple of minutes, and I want to make sure that our listeners know that you are not making a profit from this book, that all the royalties are going to the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. Do you want to just say a little bit about why you made that decision? Yeah, so the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, the CIW, is a terrific organization that is internationally known, and they are working to raise the very dismal wages of farm workers in the United States. They're also working to give more power to farm workers so that they can have more control and regulation within their own industry. And they're also helping to eliminate some of the terrible abuses that happen for farm workers, especially women and conditions that are very much like slavery. People say, you know, slavery has been abolished in 1863, 1865. That's not true. The way that a lot of our farm workers work, their conditions mirror very closely slavery. And so it was important to me that the social justice thread that underlines all of my research and all of the courses that I teach, I want to continue with that and make sure that I give back by donating all of these royalties in perpetuity to the CIW. So I hope that people will be inspired to look them up and also support them. They do incredible work. Yeah, it's a tragedy of the winter tomatoes that we don't think about. So Mm -hmm. I'm grateful to you for that generosity. We've got to close, but I want to bring forth 
two statements that you say, one in the introduction and one in the conclusion. You write that attention to visual representations should be a requirement for any scholar studying food because consumers encounter food through images, not just the foods themselves. And I would extend that to say that attention to visual representations of our food should be a requirement for anyone who eats. And then in your conclusion, you wisely write that you hope this book will inspire readers to probe all representations of food more deeply and use them to metabolize questions about where food comes from, who produces it, why it matters, and how visual images obviate or hide the answers to these very questions. I want to thank you so much for this body of work and for being my guest today. Thank you so much, Melinda. Hearing you repeat those words back to me was chilling. I have goosebumps because those really are two critical mottos that underline everything that I do. And let me also reinforce that I do not want my research to be a period at the end of the sentence. I want people to jump on this research and take it in other directions and think about how avocados are visualized, how tomatoes are depicted in art. This is not the final word. There's so much more to be done, and I'm appreciative of you giving me this platform. Oh. Well, we've got to close. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in downtown Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank Dr. Shana Klein, art historian, assistant professor of art history at Kent State University, and author of this tremendous book, The Fruits of Empire, Art, Food, and the Politics of Race in the Age of American Expansion. Thank you again. Thank you, Melinda. You're listening to KBOO Portland. Coming up next is Jazz Lives, right after these news headlines. Bienvenidos a un breve informativo en su estación comunitaria 